We are going to be in Colossians this morning. Jeremy is out of town on a, a little vacation, so he's not here with us, but he's preaching through 1 Thessalonians, and uh, once a month we get a chance to dive into Paul's letter to the Colossians. And we are wrapping up chapter 2 this morning. The final passage in chapter 2, and that's what we're, where we will be. Our text is verses 20 through 23, and if you're using a blue Bible we provide, it's on page 984. So Colossians 2, verses 20 to 23, is our text. And I always like to at least do a little refresher, a little reminder of what we covered last time, what brought us to this point, so we'll understand the passage in context. Leading up to this, and the verses we covered last time were verses 16 to 19, and we already began to see in those verses, Paul finally go into detail in addressing the claims of the false teachers where he exposed what they were peddling as nothing more than a false spirituality. They were depending on themselves and their own religious performance and relentless pursuits of mystical experiences for spiritual growth. And this, Paul said in verse 19, indicated that they were not holding fast to the head, that is, to Christ. The false teachers were saying that observing some of the ceremonial aspects of God's law for Israel was the means to spiritual growth and a sign of greater devotion to God. They judged themselves to be greater worshipers of God. And they called others to follow their teaching and example, and those they didn't, oh, they criticized and condemned them. They believed that their adherence to their own self-prescribed religious disciplines allowed them to assert themselves as spiritual authorities in the church. But they had turned away from the one who has true authority over the church, and that is Christ. The church belongs to him. The church answers to him. He is the Lord. Therefore, Paul said to the Colossians in that last passage we covered, they're not to pass judgment on you or to disqualify you. They have no authority and their religious practices are in no way required of the church. And more than that, they lack any real substance so they will not produce anything of spiritual value in the life of the Christian. They're very religious, and they appear very devoted to God, but they really are offering you nothing. Now in verses 20 through 23, Paul continues to address the fact that the false teacher's religious practices do nothing for the Christian's spiritual growth. And so we're going to conclude this chapter before Paul moves on to give them exhortations in godly living in the Christian life. He wants to drive this home, his point about the false teachers, and refuting their error and exposing them for what they are. Starting in verse 20, he writes this, If with Christ you died to the Elementary principles of the world, and if you'll remember, that was a translational issue, right? Elemental spirits is one way of translating it. If you're using the ESV, it has a footnote that offers also a potential of elementary principles, and that's what it actually is referring to. Principles of religion, religious principles of the world. If with Christ you died to the elemental, elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So it's in this passage that we learn that at least some in the church at Colossae had been intimidated by the false teachers into embracing their religious practices. Seems to be the case here. He's asking, why do you submit to these regulations? So some had bought into it. Some had been influenced by them or more so intimidated by them to follow their example, to embrace their teaching. 
Now, we have to remember the church in Colossae as a whole had been holding the line and remaining firm in their faith in Christ. Paul affirmed them for their faithfulness. As he indicated back in verse 5 of this chapter. However, it appears that after seeing the false teachers' examples of extreme religious devotion, and after hearing their persuasive arguments favoring their unique religious philosophy, a number of the Colossians were, were led to mistakenly believe that the false teachers actually had something valuable to offer them in the area of spiritual growth and godliness. Not to, not to forsake Christ, but to embrace things that would supplement their faith in Christ, to embrace things or a way of life that they were told was more devoted to God more spiritual, led to more spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. However, Paul says that these religious practices, he said they stemmed from elementary principles of the world. In other words, by, by that he means this, they were, they were nothing more than basic, rudimentary principles of primitive religion. Principles which emphasized external regulations and rituals and ceremonies. They pointed to heavenly truths and spiritual realities, but in and of themselves, they were mere shadows of the things to which they pointed. In and of themselves, they didn't have substance. They didn't have value. They pointed to spiritual truth. And Paul says Jesus Christ is the embodiment of these things. Jesus is the substance. He is God the Son, the one for whom God the Father made all things, and the one through whom the Father is reconciling all things to himself. Those who trust in Jesus receive forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and the hope of resurrection unto glory and entrance into his coming kingdom, which will endure forever. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Those who are trusting in Christ have been born again. They have God the Spirit dwelling within them. They are spiritually alive. They have been reconciled to God. All these things Paul's affirmed to the Colossians in his letter. The Son's perfect and complete work of atonement on the believer's behalf has removed the barrier that stood between them and the Father because of their sin. Therefore, there's no more need for them to adhere to practices that served to remind them of the problem of their sin and their need for cleansing. If you remember what a lot of the rituals and ceremonies and regulations, uh, the purpose of them were for, at least in the Old Testament law for Israel, it was to remind them of their sin, to remind them of their need for cleansing, to have their sins atoned for, because God is holy and without atonement, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, that whole sacrificial system, that whole ceremonial system pointed to their need for salvation. And guess what? The Savior has come. And so Paul says there's no more need for those things. The significance of such practices has come to an end with the atoning death of Christ. He accomplished what they simply illustrated. And when he died for sins, their purpose was fulfilled in him. He did not come to abolish law, but to fulfill it. Fulfill it. Therefore, those who have been united to Christ by faith, Paul says, have died with him and thus have been freed from these practices. In Christ, they have died to the old way and have been raised to walk in newness of life. To worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Remember that. Jesus said the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Remember when he was talking to the Samaritan woman? He said, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. Jews worship what we do know. They're worshiping according to truth. But he said there's a day coming where we're not going to be talking about this or arguing about locations, you know, these external practices and everything, but the Father is going to call people to worship in him in spirit and in truth. So in Christ, we've died to the old way. We've been raised to walk in newness of life, to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And, and I think we see a good picture of this in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Listen to this. The author writes, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, by what? By the blood of Jesus. 
by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's alluding to all the the Old Testament law for Israel, all the ceremonial uh, regulations that were there to remind them that they could not approach the holy God, a holy God, because of their sin. But this writer, the author of Hebrews, says, because Jesus made the way through his sacrifice, we can boldly come before God who is holy because we've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. So if you are in Christ, you are called to worship the Father through the Son, by the Spirit, in accordance with the truth, and from the heart. So Paul asked the Colossians as a way of reminding them of gospel truth. Verse 20, if you died, if with Christ you died to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? And in verse 22, according to human precepts and teachings. In other words, why are you you subjecting yourself to man-made religious regulations? Why would you do that? Why are you adopting these practices as if Christ has not come into the world and fulfilled the law of God and secured your redemption, body and soul, through his death, burial, and resurrection? Adhering to these strict regulations may make it seem like you're being more devoted to God. But in reality, it's an empty devotion. It has no real spiritual substance. It has no real spiritual value. And what I want us to look at in this passage that we're looking at this morning, verses 20 through 23, is, is Paul pointed out two basic traits of this religious devotion that exposed its emptiness. Two basic traits of this this religious devotion of the false teachers that they're saying you should adopt to be more devoted to God. Two traits that exposed it as empty. First was this. It was primarily focused on external matters. External matters. That was the primary focus. The outside. Material things, temporal things. In verse 21, Paul refers to the kind of commands given by the false teachers. What does he say? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And these, he said in verse 22, were in reference to things that perish as they're used. In other words, the false teachers were focused on what you ate and what you drank. And they were insisting that In order to be more devoted to God, one must completely abstain from certain kinds of food and drink. That'll do it. As if having any physical contact with these material items would somehow spiritually contaminate you. Notice the progression in in the commands. You are not to partake of these things, not even a little bit, no tasting, You must not even touch them if you are to remain pure in your devotion to God. This notion completely contradicted Jesus' clear teaching on the matter of eating and drinking. Do you remember what he taught about food, about drink? What did he say? Well, we can look at Mark's gospel. In chapter 7, Jesus said this, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared, all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of what? 
Out of the heart, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So in Colossians 2.23, Paul says that the false teacher's precepts and teachings promoted asceticism and severity to the body. This shows that they went further in the focus on external matters than mere abstinence from certain types of food and drink. It wasn't just that you're to abstain from certain things. They went even further. And if you remember what asceticism is, it's, it's... Extreme self-denial, the practice of extreme, rigorous self-denial. They practice this extreme form of self-denial and subjected their bodies to severe treatment through excessive fasting. That was typically the way asceticism was practiced. That was the primary way it was practiced. Excessive fasting and other kinds of intense self-deprivation. And they believed... They were demonstrating greater devotion to God and being more spiritual through the severe neglect and harsh treatment of their bodies, as if their physical bodies in and of themselves were evil and were the primary hindrances to their worship and devotion to God. One commentator says this, I thought this was insightful and helpful on this issue. He said the false teachers taught a form of philosophical dualism. You know, this idea that that the material world, physical body, that's that's evil, that's bad. The spiritual realm is good. And there's a separation. And you have to remember, God made you in his image, and you are body and soul. But he made you made us physical creatures. And if you remember in Genesis 1, what did he say at the end of his creation? The physical world he created, it's very good. Something tainted it. What was that? It was sin. So these false teachers are adopting this unbiblical, secular view of the world, philosophical dualism. They practiced asceticism in an attempt to free the spirit from the prison of the body. The view that the body was evil eventually found its way into the church. According to the church father, Athanasius, Anthony, the founder of Christian monasticism, never changed his vest or washed his feet. He was outdone, however, by Simeon Stylitus, and if you look at the date there, uh, 390 to 459 AD, so again, just eventually in the church, these things become popularized. The wisdom of the world came into the church. So this Simeon figure spent the last 36 years of his life atop a 50-foot pillar. Simeon mistakenly thought the path to spirituality lay in exposing his body to the elements and withdrawing from the world. Quite the guru. Their, Their feats have been emulated by monks throughout church history, and if you know, there's the whole monastic movement that came into practice. Even Martin Luther, before discovering the truth of justification by faith, nearly wrecked his health through asceticism. Again, treating his body harshly, thinking that that somehow expressed a greater devotion to God, sleeping in the cold without blankets, depriving himself of nutrition and food in an extreme sense, It actually affected his health for the rest of his life. But you know, God saved Martin Luther. And then he was transformed by the renewal of his mind. He read the scriptures and was freed from all these practices that were traditions in the church at large and seen as very spiritual. He was liberated and came to see that all that stuff that he did was in vain. Had no real power to it. So here's the point. A devotion to God that obsesses over external practices that affect the physical body but do not address the heart is an empty devotion. 
Don't be fooled by external religion. A lot of external practices have, don't affect the heart at all. And the problem is the heart, isn't it? That's what God looks at. That's what God weighs. In Proverbs, it's written that the Lord weighs the hearts. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. That's what God desires, right? Obedience to obey is better than sacrifice. He wants you to walk in righteousness, to do justice, to be merciful. And after all, it is easy to sacrifice, isn't it? It's easy to go through, you know, the motions and practice external traditions and things like that, to be outwardly religious. It's a lot harder to address the issues of the heart and to bring your will into conformity with God's. And that's what God cares about. Paul wrote in Romans, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So the false teachers in Colossae were emphasizing merely external matters that were irrelevant to the kingdom of God, and thus to those who belong to His kingdom, those who are in Christ. Their kind of devotion, these false teachers, their kind of devotion was was less of an attempt to please God and more of an attempt to impress God and to impress others. They were doing, what, a, a service unto God? They were trying to impress Him with their outward display of devotion. And guess what? They probably were more interested in how others viewed them as well. So that was the first trait, this emphasis on external matters. The devotion that focuses on external matters primarily or makes a lot out of them, that's an empty devotion. Well, what's the second trait? Well, Paul points out the second trait that was prescribed by these false teachers that exposed it as being empty. It's this. It was according to human precepts and teachings. We see that in verse 22 and also in verse 23. The regulations that some of the Colossians began submitting themselves to, Paul says, were according to the precepts and teachings of men, not of God. The false teachers were operating on their authority, and apparently they believed they had a a rightful claim to this authority because of their understanding of worldly philosophy and because of their own personal, subjective, spiritual experiences. We read about that. They sought to add on to the commandments of Christ with their own commandments. After all, they're super devoted. So they have some wisdom and they want to add some commands that they think would be helpful for you to be more devoted to Christ. Like the Pharisees, they sought to lay heavy burdens upon the shoulders of God's people. As if to say, you're not doing enough. That's great. Yes, God is gracious, but you're not doing enough. You need to do more. However, we don't find in God's word any backing for the practices they taught. There's no biblical mandate for Christians to adopt a life of asceticism. The false teachers in Colossae went above and beyond the Lord's commands for his church. And thus, what they taught had no authority. If it isn't ultimately from Christ, if it isn't from the word of God, it has no authority. The devotion they prescribed was not according to God's will or wisdom, which made it unspiritual. They're trying to give spiritual advice, spiritual instruction, but their instruction is based on the precepts and teachings of men, not on God's word, not on God's wisdom, and therefore what they're offering you is unspiritual. It was empty. It was altogether different from what God desired and required. And the result of operating on their own authority and not holding fast to Christ, who is the head, as Paul said to them in verse 19, what they had was, he says in verse 23, was a self-made religion. Self-made. Custom-made spirituality. That is, it's a self-willed or a self-imposed religion. One commentator writes this, the term which Paul uses, self-made religion, the term which he uses implies that these people thought they were offering to God a voluntary addition to his basic 
requirements. A supererogatory that is going beyond what is required or expected. The supererogatory devotion by which they hope to acquire superior merit in his sight. Notice in verse 23 that Paul says that the religious devotion of the false teachers had an appearance of wisdom. You see that? It has an appearance of wisdom. They were demonstrating incredible willpower. And the uniqueness of their practices and supposed experiences made it seem like they had something special to offer. I mean, after all, they apparently received visions from God. Have you received visions? Have you had these kinds of experiences? And they seem really devoted. Maybe there's something to it. They have the appearance of wisdom. Seems like they have something special to offer. However, their unique religious devotion, Paul says, was not based upon God's word. It was merely a man-made spirituality. Just because religious teachers are sincere doesn't necessarily mean they're teaching spiritual truth. So they can be sincere all they want. The question you need to ask is, is it true? Is it truth? Just because religious teachers show incredible dedication doesn't necessarily mean that they are displaying true spiritual power. You know, willpower and all that, dedication. That doesn't mean there's real spiritual power behind what they do. And we already mentioned external trappings of religion doesn't take a lot of power at all to do that. Oh, it's easy to, well, I don't know, say some special kinds of prayers and chants and do all sorts of mystical things or external religious practices, put on special robes and everything uh, to look really devoted. That's easy. So just because they're dedicated doesn't mean there's real spiritual power. And just because their practices are different or unique or altogether new doesn't mean they have spiritual insight or maturity. So again, usually there's a tendency, I think, maybe in all of us, to, to at least be a little enamored by something, things that are new, different, right? And especially if you look at the, the Christian book publishing world, there's all sorts of books always, always coming out. There's a lot of good ones, but a lot of garbage coming out as well. And it's all about, you know, basically a new angle, uh, you know, new things to, to tap into the spiritual power of God or to be more devoted or to express devotion to God in, in a better way, however it might be, telling you how to live the Christian life. And we're kind of looking and say, okay, something new, something different. Maybe this one will work. So just because it's different and unique or altogether new doesn't mean there's actual spiritual insight or maturity there. One commentator, and by the way, this is John Calvin, one of the reformers, so centuries ago. I think he put it really well when he speaks of, of this observation or this issue of Paul addressing the false teachers in this passage. He says, It is of importance to consider here how prone, nay, how forward, the mind of man is to artificial modes of worship. Would you agree? Artificial worship can be very attractive. He goes on, for the apostle here graphically describes the state of the old system of monkhood. So think when he's writing, monasticism had been popular for centuries. You had orders of monks dedicated different disciplines. And he's looking back on all this and seeing it for what it is. And he's saying, Paul graphically describes this system that we have even still today, monkhood, which came into use a hundred years after his death, as, if, as though he had never spoken a word. Paul writes his letter to the Colossians, this inspired scripture, the word of God. And it's not long after the actual date of this letter that monasticism came about and became practiced in the church. And he's pointing this out. And it's as if though the Apostle Paul, the Apostle of Jesus Christ, never spoke a word on this issue. The zeal of men, therefore, for superstition, 
is surpassingly mad, which could not be restrained by so plain a declaration of God from breaking forth as historical records testify. And that's still the case today. I want to remind you that Colossians 2 is essentially the go-to passage for us to to expose false spirituality, false religion all around us, even within the church, right? Professing Christianity. How do we measure? Well, if we look, if we read chapter 2, and it seems to, I would say it seems to describe what's still being practiced in Eastern Orthodox Church and Roman Catholicism. External religiosity. Read Colossians. Your eyes are open to see how clear God has addressed those kinds of issues and exposed them for what they are. Artificial. False. Not impressive at all. Not pleasing to God. God's word is sufficient in directing us in our worship of him. Do you think that God desires that you come up with unique ways to express devotion to him? Does he want you to do that? Shouldn't we rather excel in the kind of devotion he actually requires of us and desires from us instead of adding to it? I mean, he has, after all, given us his revelation on the matter. He's spoken on the matter. And that's what we find in Scripture. For, an ex- for example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 and then verses 9 and 10, Paul wrote this, Finally then, brothers... We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Then verse 9, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Isn't that the greatest commandment? That's the business we're to be about. And he's saying they are doing this. They've been taught by God to love one another. They are doing this. He says that for that indeed in verse 10 is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to start fasting and treating your bodies harshly. You need to be more spiritual. We don't see that, do we? But we urge you, brothers, to do this. To do what? To be loving one another. Do this more and more. Excel in the things that God has actually called you to do if you are in Christ. And before we move on, I want to clarify that a local church may choose to observe certain traditions or ceremonies that are essentially man-made, but that doesn't automatically mean that they're bad. So this isn't like a tradition, ceremony, bashing kind of message here. Not all ceremonies are bad. Not all traditions are bad. For example, we at Summit, we celebrate Good Friday, Easter, and Christmas. We hold special service, holidays, holy days, right? We do that, don't we? That's a tradition of ours. And occasionally we do uh, baby dedications, you don't find that in scripture, by the way. So it's not, it's not a, a command for the church. I ask you to love one another and do baby dedications. It's not in there. It's not in there. Right? So these are, these are traditions. And Paul's even addressed the issue of holy days, observing, setting apart certain days as more special than the others. He's, he's addressed that, that they, it's, it's a matter of preference. Some people would like to do that, even if having a, a Sabbath, right? If they, if they want to set aside a day for the Lord and they want to keep doing that, that's fine but it's not mandated. So we do these things. And we would say that these are good things. Why? Well, because they uphold and are aligned with biblical truth. However, we don't have to do them, do we? We don't have to do them. We don't have to have Good Friday service, Christmas service, Easter service. That might be a shock to some of you. We don't have to do them. We don't have to do baby dedications. And we would be no less devoted to God if we stop doing them all together. I know it might sting a little bit if we say, guys, we're not actually going to do a Christmas service. We're just going to you know, keep preaching in First Thessalonians. It'll be a regular service. You know, That might hurt a little bit, right? You might be a little offended by that. But again, it's not mandatory. So if we didn't do it, we would be no less devoted to God if we stopped doing those things. 
All right. But here's the issue. How do we know? How do we measure traditions and ceremonies, things like that? that I mean, that are man-made, that we don't find in Scripture. How do we measure them? How do we test if, you know, if they're bad? I mean, if, if they're the things that Paul's actually condemning in Colossians 2. Well, first of all, man-made traditions are bad. Uh, they're only bad in these two cases. First of all, when they are put on par with Scripture and seen as necessary and mandatory. If we say... Brother, if you're talking about taking away the Christmas service, I think you're sinning against God. You know, I mean, that's, that's when actually it would be a bad tradition because you're putting it on par with Scripture and saying it's necessary and mandatory. The other case when traditions are bad is when they undermine or contradict the teaching of Scripture. Uh, so when tradition becomes necessary and mandatory on par with Scripture, it's bad. Also when it undermines or contradicts the teaching of Scripture. So some practices, people would say, well, it's not mandatory. I mean, you don't have to. You'd be more spiritual if you did. And, but if that practice actually undermined or contradicted what God has revealed as good, then it would be a bad tradition. So it's, it's by Scripture that we're to measure these things. Scripture's our guide. Now, finally, at the, the end of verse 23, Paul points out the effect, the effect of a devotion to God that is focused on external matters rather than on the heart, and that is based upon human precepts and teachings rather than on the Word of God. Here's the effect of this kind of devotion. He says, it contributes nothing to stopping the indulgence of the flesh, that is, sinful desires. Verse 23, these Precepts and teachings have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Notice the play on words. Notice the play on words here. Paul says that the false teachers' deprivation and harsh treatment of their physical bodies did nothing to deprive their flesh. You see, they deprived their physical bodies, but it did nothing to deprive the flesh, which is their sinful desires. Remember what Jesus said, right? He said that what defiles us are the evil thoughts that come out of our hearts. Sin is the problem, and it's a spiritual problem. It's not something tangible or material that we can physically starve or beat into submission Treating your body harshly isn't going to do anything about evil desires coming out of your heart. It might distract you a little bit because you're fatigued, you're in such pain from all your self-deprivation and torment, but it does nothing to stop those desires from surfacing. Devotion that is based on the idea that sinful desire is put to death by depriving or attacking the body is an empty devotion. It's ineffective it's powerless. It has no real spiritual value. That value. That's what Paul's saying. And think about it. We just got to think this through. It seems quite logical, what he's saying here. Now think about it. When, when you're dealing with your own sin, you know what that is. That's between you and the Lord, right? When you're dealing with your own sin, think about it. Uh, and, and your own sin, our, our sin always boils down to some form of pride and self-centeredness. Some form of it, some manifestation of that. And when you're dealing with this and you're having difficulty, let's say, loving your spouse or training your children at, uh, or doing your work with integrity as the Lord has called you to do, or if you are struggling with lust or anger or covetousness, would the following counsel be effective in helping you? You should give up meat and alcohol. That's your problem. A little indulgent there. You should sleep on a hard floor surface instead of your soft mattress. Come on. You should go without food for a week. I mean, come on. What's, what's this like? I didn't eat dinner last night. I fasted. Pfft, amateur. You need to go for a week. Then you'll really feel it. And that you feel that, that feeling and hear those sounds, that's spirituality. <laughs> How about a modern one? You should do yoga. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not going to go there. But is, if that's the counsel, you think that's going to help you at all? 
you think that's going to do anything with your struggle with sin? Empty devotion, empty spirituality. External practices are of no value in stopping the indulgence of our sinful desires. These kinds of external practices. So what would the appropriate counsel be? Here it is. You ready? We can address all these situations. It's a general counsel, but it's effective. Trust in the Lord. Repent of your sin. And obey his word concerning these matters. You might think, sounds a little simplistic. Overly simplistic, brother. But consider the fact that Paul has once again reminded the Colossians that they have died with Christ. So what does that mean? Who they once were, their old self, is dead and buried. And they have been born again as new creations in Christ. Not only does this mean that elementary principles of religion no longer have any purpose for them, but also more importantly that sin no longer has any power over them. Do you believe that? Sin, if you are in Christ, sin has no power over you. Oh, it's still around. It still has some influence. You feel its presence. But it has no power over you anymore. The enslaving power of sin has been broken for those who are in Christ. Though its presence remains, it is no longer our master. We have received the Holy Spirit. Scripture tells us this. It affirms these things. We've been born again. We've received the Holy Spirit, who's taken up residence within us, and who enables us to say no to sin. To turn from it. To, to put it off and put it to death. This is why Paul can simply say, as he did in Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ... And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. He just straight up tells him, don't make provision for the flesh. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The false teachers told the Colossians that they needed strict regulations and rituals in order to have victory over sin and to be more devoted to God. But Paul told them, you have Christ. You have the one who is the image of the invisible God. You have the one in whom the fullness of God dwells. The one in whom all things hold together. The one in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You have him. And in him you have spiritual life and fullness and power. He is sufficient for you. You don't need to supplement him. So what is true devotion to God? actually look like we keep talking about empty devotion false spirituality what does true devotion look like we've seen paul expose the devotion of the false teachers as being empty now let's take a little look to close out our time at what he describes as real devotion which he lays out in some detail in chapter three it's where we're going we're going to get there and and before we we dive into it in detail i want to just survey chapter three I want us to take a look at that because we're going to see what we are called to be doing. The kind of devotion that the Lord desires from us. And it'll be quite a contrast from what Paul's been addressing with the false teachers. Chapter 3, starting in verse 5. You ready? Buckle your seatbelts. We're going to read up to chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, here's true devotion. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, 
but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. This is true devotion to God. This is true spirituality. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. This is devotion to Christ. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer would be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Notice what we did not see in any of that. Paul mentioned nothing of regulations and rituals and ceremonies. Rather, he simply said... Put off and put on. Put, a, put to death what is earthly in you. Put away these things in which you once walked, which you have been saved out of. And put on godliness. In verse 16, though, he reminds us of how we are enabled to do these things. If you caught that in verse 16. How we are enabled to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Okay, so put sin to death. Put it off. Put on righteousness. Put on godliness. You are enabled to do this because Christ is in you. The Spirit of God is enabling you to do these things. You're no longer under sin's power that you would have to do its bidding. You can put it off and put on righteousness. But what's the means by which we're able to do that? How are we enabled? How are we empowered to do these things? Does he just say, do it? He actually gives us means in verse 16. And again, it's not... Go without food for a really long time. Sleep on a hard floor. It's not all these external religious practices. Verse 16, the means by which we are enabled to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He says, let the, the word of the Lord, the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let God's word dwell in you richly. True devotion is not just informed by the scriptures. It is fueled by the scriptures. This is the means by which we are to be transformed by the renewal of our mind so as to present ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Do you remember that in Romans 12? To present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Paul writes, don't be conformed to the world any longer, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And how is that done? It is as we have the word of God dwelling in us, as we we study and meditate upon the scriptures. So what is true devotion? Here's how we can sum it up. True devotion can be summed up in this way. We are to be trusting Christ. We continue in him as we received him. We walk in faith. We trust in him. He is sufficient. We are to be listening to Christ. This isn't a, a faith that's alone. It's not empty. It has content. What's the content? It is the word of Christ. 
the word of the Lord. It is the scriptures. So we are to be trusting Christ, listening to Christ, and we do that as he speaks to us through his word. And we don't stop there, but we obey Christ. We bring our wills into conformity to his. We bring our lives in submission to his word. That is true devotion. That is true devotion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for your word and how much of a light it is for us, for our path, that we might walk in a manner worthy of you. Thank you for equipping us with your wisdom and with your truth, for exposing the false spirituality and artificial worship that we are surrounded by, uh, giving us discernment on these things and, and centering our focus back on your son who is preeminent over all things for whom we exist the one who has redeemed us by his blood. Father, we pray that you would help us express true devotion to you. For you loved us first, Lord. Help us to love you as you desire to be loved. Help us to walk in your ways and your wisdom. Help us to express true devotion to you. May you enable us and equip us by your spirit, through your word, to walk in a manner worthy of you, to be faithful And Father, we pray for discernment for our church. Help us to be faithful in the things you've called us to do, to major on those things, to excel in them more and more, and to not be distracted or enticed by the onslaught of spiritual fads and religious trends that we're always inundated with, as if we are missing something, lacking something. Help us to be a church that has a successful ministry. And we know that, Lord, success in your eyes is faithfulness. Continuing in the truth, being united in the truth and growing in love for you and for one another. Help us to be faithful in the things you've called us to do. May your word continue to be our guide. May we bring ourselves under it and in that way do what is pleasing in your eyes. In Jesus' name, amen.